So uh, this is First Peter five. Uh, I'm going to read um, the first fifteen verses of that, or sorry, the first eleven verses of that chapter. This is the word of God. Peter says, so I exhort the elders, he's talking to a church, he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, now he's talking to all of us, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced By your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, Peter is not just giving some instructions for our churches and how they're supposed to organize things. But you call yourself the good shepherd. You call us your sheep. And you say specifically that your sheep know your voice. So tonight, would we hear it? Not my voice, but through my voice would we hear yours. Through my voice would you encourage us, nourish us, shepherd us, protect us, guard us. pray that you do this because you love us. And do this because it makes you all the more lovely to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I'm 37 today. And I've been a little reflective since I found out it was my birthday. And so reminiscent, and I've been looking back over the you know, 37 years of my life. And in my enlightened 37-ness of the past few hours, what I have noticed about my story and my life is that it's really the story of other people. When you get to be 37 or you get to be your age, I don't know if you felt this yet, maybe not. I've only felt it recently. Late 30s, when you look back over the course of your life, you're really only seeing three or four key climactic events, right? Kind of like if you take a U.S. history class, they're not covering like every day of U.S. history. They're covering the wars, the social movements, civil rights things, stuff like that. Not everything. When I look back over the course of my life, I think of three or four climactic moments and the people that were there when all that stuff went down. And for me, those climactic moments were a lot of what you're living through now. So it was the story I told about Brent and them earlier of, of coming to the conclusion I was dead. I didn't know God. 
I was not his friend. I was his enemy. And him waking me up and, and giving me ears to hear the gospel, that was a huge event. He surrounded me with a ton of people. Um, then there was the years of trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do with my life? I got this major and I kind of don't think I want to use it. What am I supposed to do now? And on into the relationship years. Who do I date? When do we date? Do we get engaged or not? Do we get married or not? Do I take this job or that job? All those climactic events and the people that God put around me in those moments. And so if I were to tell you the story of my life, I would tell you the story of you know, my mom and my dad. Because it, they're kind of the umbrella over my life that have, that have given me the privilege of never having to live a nanosecond of life wondering if I have a place in this world that will embrace me, that will love me. But then if I tell you the story of my life, it's the story of, of Hal and Don, who kind of were there when I first became a Christian in this church and helped me connect those initial dots and sort out the chaos of my life and figure out what in the world was going on. And then it was the story of, um, the, the story of Rob, who in this room and in that room, who on campus walked with me when I started for the first time in my life experiencing intense doubts and confusions about myself, doubts about God, doubts about the Bible, doubts about everything. And then it was moving on to Philadelphia and seminary, and then my life became the story of Tuck and Drew and Mike and Chris. And those were the guys, Tuck and Drew in particular, who were there to talk me back from a thousand cliffs that I'd walked to the edge on. Just freaking myself out, overthinking everything, overanalyzing everything about my relationship, about what the future would hold, about the unknowns that surrounded me on every side. And Tuck and Drew were there every week getting my texts and my phone calls. Can we meet up again? Can we talk about the same thing we talked about the past ten times again? No, they're, they're the people Jesus put there. In that season. And then it was Mike. And Mike was the guy who, over the course of a couple of years, gave me a very big and a very powerful Jesus for a very tiny, scared man who was me. And then it was moving on from then. And it was Keith, my boss, who shepherded me, who took care of me, who taught me the ropes of ministry. And, it, and all along then, too, it's been these digital people I've never met them, but the Tim Kellers, the Paul Tripps, the Sinclair Fergusons, the guys with old names like Horatius Bonner, John Murray, people who've been dead for 200 years, people who have left a tremendous impact on my life and who I am today. So let me wrap all of this up. What am I getting at? What's the point of all of this? The story of my life is the story of other people. To be more specific, the story of my life is the story of the elders, the pastors, the shepherds that were there with me, for me, in those key climactic moments of my life. That's my story. If you ask me, tell me about this season of your life, immediately faces pop into my mind. Those faces, those stories, those people. The story of my life is a story of people that God put around me to carry me, to grow me, to untangle me, to teach me, to correct me when I needed it, to straighten me out when I needed it. 
That's the story of my life. The shepherds, the pastors. I'm not unique. I'm not different. If you're a Christian, when you get to be 37, you should, I would bet you will be able to look back over the course of your life and people are going to start popping into your mind when someone says, tell me about yourself. Seasons of your life are going to be populated with the people that God put around you at that time. They're people custom shaped for what you needed at that time, that season of your life. And they're pastors, they're counselors, they're interns, they're elders, they're spiritual leaders. They're people that God put around you that you looked up to in that moment. And I want to remind you, maybe you're new, maybe this is your first time at RUF this spring. If it is, or if you've forgotten what we've been talking about the past, I think, seven or eight times. We've been talking about life for the Christian is a life in exile. This, this place, though it was made to be a home for us to live with God forever, is very inhospitable for us now, right? It's like creation itself, life itself, my heart itself is set against my thriving. The question is, are you alone in this place of exile that God says you do life now until he returns to make everything new? Are you alone? Does he kind of just slide a book across the table and say, here's some principles for living well in exile. Make sure you master them. No. He gives you people. He puts people around you. People with names, people with stories, people with cell phone numbers you can call, people you can text, people you can see, you can hear, you can shake their hand, you can take a walk with them, you can get coffee with them, you can go for a run with them. They can call you when you don't show up. They can see from your body language when you need to be asked what's really going on. That's how Jesus takes care of you in a place of exile. That is fragile, that is vulnerable, that is prone to temptation. Where we're prone to cynicism. Where we're ostracized like we talked about before spring break. Like we're pushed to the edge when you seem strange to the world. What has Jesus provided for you? Not just disembodied grace and principles and insights. He's given you people. To carry you, to help you. To walk with you. And so hear that before we push on any further. Just let that sink in because it's a little bit of a paradigm shift. And I never thought about life this way when I was sitting in the chair you're sitting in. It's not the way I thought about it. Church for me wasn't a place where I ever expected to be truly known or to have people in the room who truly knew me. Church was a place that I hopped around. Every Sunday it was kind of like balancing the moral or the, the existential scale again. I felt a little bit bad from the previous few days. I go to church to kind of level things out again. I walk in, I hear a message, I sing some songs, and I leave again. I just didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that that was a place filled to the gills with resources that God had given to grow me. To nourish me, to feed me, to help me. And so Peter is saying, in a weird way, he's not saying this directly, he's saying this indirectly. As he talks to the elders in the church, those who have been set aside in positions of leadership, pastoral responsibility. He says to you, God has given you shepherds for you and you need them. And so if that's kind of the first principle is just this idea, this reality that there are shepherds out there with your name on them. 
And they've been given to you to take care of you, to grow you, to walk through this exilic life with you, to point you back to Jesus. If that is true, then what are they supposed to be like? How easy are they to follow, to be subject to them? Because Peter says, subject yourselves to them. What are they supposed to be like? Well, here's Peter's description of them as he kind of zoom into the passage a little bit more in detail. Peter says, overall, the blanket statement that Peter's getting at is, these people are fellow sufferers with you. Life is hard for them too. These are not the people who have figured it all out and hold their knowledge or their superiority over you and leverage it over you. And you kind of like, wait, you're struggling with what? Really? That's the question? You're like, what? These are not those kind of people. These are people who are fellow sufferers. Peter says he is one, a fellow elder who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Peter's speaking in a unique way about himself as an apostle. Peter literally saw the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Peter saw the glory of Jesus in the resurrection. But he's saying from chapters 3, from chapter 4, moving into chapter 5, the whole big context of this is that the Christian life for the leader, for the follower, is a life tinged by suffering. Tinged by weakness now, strength later. Suffering now, glory later. Peter says, for your leaders, for your mentors, for your interns, for your pastors, your campus ministers, they suffer. They bleed like you. They groan like you. They get scars like you. They're in the trenches like you. They say, me too, when you confess sin. Their mind goes back to memories when they struggled with what you struggle with or struggle now with what you struggle with. Peter says they're sufferers. Present tense. And he goes on from that. And he says these, these people are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. He's using a metaphor there that it's ancient in the Bible. This isn't the first time. Peter's not like reaching for some teaching tool. Oh, I get, uh, be, be like a shepherd. Dating all the way back through the prophets, all the way deep into the Old Testament, God's first encounters with his people, God calls himself Israel's shepherd. The prophets are full of this stuff. You're the sheep, God is the shepherd. And, and, and Peter is telling these people in the church, set apart for leadership, gifted to lead, to shepherd the flock of God. That was a very rich meaning there. He didn't say manage the flock. He didn't say administer the flock. He didn't say logistically lead the flock. He said shepherd the flock, which was intensely hands-on. Shepherds smelled like their sheep because they spent all day and all night with their sheep. Shepherds protected their sheep. Shepherds led their sheep. Sheep didn't find green pasture apart from the shepherd. Sheep didn't find water apart from the shepherd. Peter says, shepherd the sheep in your midst. Remember, like some of you will be elders one day. Some of you are in a position now. You're an intern. You're a community group leader. You're, a, you're the person in your house your friends flock to for guidance or for prayer or whatever. You're, you're the leader. You're the influencer in the house. Peter calls you to shepherd patiently. But a lot of, but a lot of you are sitting here and you're seeing this from the perspective of the sheep. And isn't it encouraging to hear how, how Jesus, through Peter, trains your leaders? How does God want the people he's put around you at the key moments in your life to relate to you? He wants them to shepherd 
you, to walk with you, to know you so well that they know what you need when you need it. He calls them to exercise oversight. This is like the lifeguard who's been given the responsibility to have oversight over the pool, to oversee, to protect from danger, to intervene when danger is present, when someone is about to get hurt or someone is currently hurt. The overseer intervenes. And then he gets into this stuff too, which is very encouraging for you to hear as well. Peter says, the people that God is using as, as shepherds around you, they're not to be arm twisted into it. Hey, we, like, we're short on volunteers. Could you please step into this role? We need some people. We're three people short. Please, please, please. No, no. Peter says, for those of you who will be shepherds. And for those of you who are shepherds, this is never something that you enter into through arm twisting because they needed you. This is something you step into soberly and humbly because your heart is soft towards these sheep. You love them. You care for them. You want to help them. You go willingly then and eagerly as God would have you, Peter says. You willingly step into this role. You don't roll your eyes at the needs of the sheep and think, man, they're so stupid, they're so weak. Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Which means this is not something that anybody ends up in after asking the question, what's in this for me? A boost in status? I get to have the microphone. I get a podium. I get to be an intern. Everyone comes to me with questions and problems, and I'm known. Everyone knows my name. Peter says, no, that's antithetical to the motivation of a shepherd's heart, which is not in it for self, but in it for others. And he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, which means that it's a role, which means that a shepherd or a mentor, a spiritual leader in your life, whatever it is for you, is a person that in a sense you can look to. And this person should somehow, someway remind you or smell like Jesus. There's a weightiness to them. There's a weightiness to their life. There's a godliness to them that you notice, that you see. I'm not saying that they're perfect. My gosh, like try reading this passage and thinking, how am I going to preach this? Not at all talking about perfect people. But your shepherds are people that you can look at their life and in some way emulate, follow, be sucked into that orbit of them following Jesus. And it makes you want to follow him too. It makes him more appealing, more attractive, more beautiful to you as you see them in awe of his beauty. And so true shepherds are like this. They're people who are in the trenches. They bleed like you. They remember their own weaknesses. They suffer like you. They love you. They're eager to walk into this, not arm-twisted, not trying to use you for their own gain. And so we should stop real quick and say, what do we do with what I just said? What do we do with what Peter just said, verses 1 through 4? When we get to be a fly on the wall while Peter has a sidebar with the elders themselves. What do we do with that? Since he's not speaking directly to many of us, what do we do? The first thing is you know that you were made to need shepherds. You were not made to be an independent operator. Me neither. 
None of us were made to be able to get through this on our own. None of us are expected to get through this on our own. You're expected to need help, and God has given help in a tangible, incarnate form all around you. Part of humbling yourself beneath the oversight, the leadership of the people God has put above you is acknowledging your need of them. Does that make sense? How that would require humility? It's the opposite. If you are puffed up in pride and this mentality of, I don't need anybody, why would I need this person? Why would I need to go meet with someone and talk about my life? Why would I need to share the sensitive details of my story and my life with anybody else? I can download podcasts. I can come to RUF. I can like listen to 15 messages every week and be fine on my own. Scripture says, no, you can't. Absolutely not. Part of subjecting yourself to the elders Jesus has put above you, around you, is simply acknowledging your need of them. What faith looks like, repentance for all of us at some level, is going to look like starting to move towards them and saying, hey, I'm Ben. Can we meet up? I need you to know me if you're going to be able to shepherd me. Um, I need to know you if I'm going to be able to trust your leadership, listen to you, take your advice to the bank, and not just be like, well, this guy doesn't even really know me, so what's the point? That's one way that we apply what we've heard. We pray for them. Did you hear how Peter just warned those in positions of leadership in the church? How prone their hearts are to lording their power over others? Did you see how Peter had to explicitly warn them against using this role for personal profit, for a a bump in status to get the megaphone, the bully pulpit? We pray for them knowing that their hearts are like our hearts, prone to wander, prone um, prone to leave the chief shepherd, Jesus. We pursue relationships with them. We put the pieces of our lives in front of them proactively. And again, I'm thinking back to college, Ben, and I'm like, this was just crazy talk to me. None of these things ever occurred to me, ever, until pretty recently. Coming across these passages, meeting these people I've told you about who were pivotal in my life. But Jesus says he's put people around you. You living by faith in what he has done. You trusting him. Looks like being proactive and saying, I don't want to play hide and seek. Here's the stuff of my life. Here's where I am at the moment. Help. Pray for me. Pray with me. Here's my question. I'm embarrassed to ask it. I don't ever bring it up in small group because I feel like I should know already. But honestly, this is what I don't figure out about the Christian life, about the Bible. I can't get past it. What do you make of this? That's what applying this passage for some of you means tonight. For some of you, it means that piece of your life that you've not shared has to come out of the closet. It's got to come out of the darkness. Why? Because you're depriving yourself of the tangible resources that God has given to help you in that area. Right? So the eating disorders have to get brought out. The sexual struggles have to get brought out. The identity issues have to get brought out. The addiction to shopping has got to get brought out so that there can be one with you in that place. 
reminding you of the gospel, pointing you back to the chief shepherd. Does that make sense? Because if you don't, you will never hear good news proclaimed over that place. You will never hear another voice see it and say, the Jesus I know is bigger than that. You can bring it out. That's nothing to him. Let's work through this together. That's what applying this passage looks like in the first four verses. Well, what do you do with the the next chunk, the last chunk we talked about? Peter shifts a little bit from talking about how we're to relate to those that God's put around us and above us in kind of spiritual leadership roles or positions. And now he talks about, well, how do we relate to the, the fellow exiles, the sojourners, as he calls us, around us, the people to your left and to your right, the people you go to small group with, people you go to church with. How are we to relate to each other in this life of exile until home comes to us? Till home is forever established here. Peter says we clothe ourselves with humility. Because just like it was for the elders who are prone to pride and being puffed up. All of us are prone to pride and being puffed up, right? Everybody wants to be talked about in a positive way. Everyone wants to be remembered. Everyone wants to be the center of attention in a good way, not too much, right? Pride destroys community. Pride destroys camaraderie. Pride frustrates cooperation. C.S. Lewis brilliantly uh, says this, and I think it's uh, mere Christianity. Um, He has this incredible um, quote. Now let me find where I put it. He's talking about how pride puffs up. And he says this, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially, in its very nature, competitive. While all the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone too. You see how pride is essentially, inherently competitive. Pride turns this room into who looks prettier than me, whose outfit is better than mine. It puts a wedge in between you and those other people. Pride immediately sets you off by yourself and puts you at, at war in battle with all the other people in the room. Who's he talking to? Why am I over here talking to these people? I don't have anyone to talk to. Pride makes a room of community and cooperation and collaboration and unity into a room of very lonely, isolated individuals who are all competing against one another. Peter says, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. Which means putting down the competition. Which means being willing to be weak in front of each other which means prioritizing another person's advantage over your own, which means dying to ourselves little moments at a time. Dying to yourself at a place like this might look like 
yeah, there's a big pocket of people over there. I wish I was in that conversation. But you know what? I need to get over myself. I need to go love some people. So I'm going to go walk over there and talk to that guy. Because I, I haven't seen him before. That's what a little death to yourself looks like. And it's actually freedom. And it has ripple effects of gospel goodness that hit that person you talked to, that hit all the other people who saw you do it and were encouraged or challenged by it. Refusing to die to yourself looks like leaving with bitterness or whatever else, finding some way to compete with others and get a leg up. Peter calls us to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. That's how we relate to our brothers and our sisters in this life. He says it three times in two verses. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Which means, when you are forgotten, when you are overlooked, when you didn't wear the better outfit, when you didn't get a laugh at your joke but the other person did, it's okay. God sees the humble. He notices you. He makes note of you. Peter says later in the passage, in due time he will exalt you. Which means he's keeping track. He knows when to lift you up in a way that won't destroy you. Humility is what is called forth from leaders. Humility is what Peter calls forth from us. Really quickly to to end. The other thing that pride produces isn't just competition. Pride produces anxiety. It's no accident that Peter Peter doesn't say... You know, cast your indifference upon the Lord. Peter doesn't say, cast your confusion upon the Lord. Peter says, cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. What's the context of that comment? Humility and pride. Pride makes us anxious because pride is Ben saying to Ben, I should be able to do everything, or I am able to do do everything. And I get anxious when that ability is thwarted, when it's threatened, when I realize I can't do everything. I'm not able to do it all. I'm not able to get through this life on my own. I get anxious. Anxiety is the prayer of an orphan. Anxiety is a prayer without an address on it. It has nowhere to go. It's a spoken petition to yourself. I've got to make this happen. I've got to fix it. So we get very stressed, very anxious, very neurotic in those moments. Peter implies here that humility, the fruit of humility, is actually a restful heart. You see anxiety diminish, faith increase, humility increase. When we remember that there is a great and mighty God who has his eyes on us, who has surrounded us with provision, and will raise us up in due time. What draws the first part of this passage and the second part of this passage together? What's consistent about Peter's message to the people who are your leaders, your mentors, your pastors, your shepherds, the people who have an impact? What's consistent with what he said to them and what he said to us, people who are, who are under that leadership, people who have shepherds, mentors, whatever else? What's the lowest common denominator between those two things? It's humility and it's shepherding. And you look at all of this and you say, as you hear me talking, you're like, well, I'm an anxious person. Well, I'm a competitive person. Well, I'm proud. I hate it when people laugh at the other guy's jokes, but not mine. I hate it when everyone talks, this, tells the story about that girl, but they don't remember me. You're sitting there, you're thinking that, or you're thinking I'm in a position of leadership. Man, I roll my eyes all the time when I think about this person coming to me with more problems or more needs. You're like, well, what do we do? 
We're not what Peter describes here. We're very far from it. What Peter talks about before in this passage and after this passage is that there was one who was a humble shepherd. He calls him the chief shepherd in this passage. He calls him the overseer of your soul back in the earlier part of this book. And Peter says throughout the entire book, the way Jesus didn't, Jesus came out of the womb humble, but Jesus practiced, practiced humility every day. Jesus came out of the womb not dying to himself, but he came out of the womb having to practice dying to himself every single day. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus laid aside his life for his sheep wasn't automatic. It was practiced. It was like an Olympian who has perfected that high dive or that jump 50,000 times before they ever got to the key moment. Jesus had perfected through practice through experience, through training, dying to himself in little moments for the sake of his sheep. And so when that final climactic moment came when his life was required of him for the sake of his wandering sheep, his proud sheep, his puffed up competitive sheep, his fearful sheep, it was almost second nature. Of course he would lay aside his interest and prioritize your interest. Of course he would set aside his life that you might have life. Of course he would. He'd already done it for 33 years, every hour of his life, in little ways and in big ways. That is what a humble shepherd looks like. That is what humility looks like in perfection. Is God the good shepherd laying down his life for wayward sheep? And one of the ways that he reminds you of this, one of the ways that he pulls you back to it, is through very weak and broken people that he has positioned all around you and above you as your shepherds. They're not Jesus. But you better believe Jesus works through them in your life to grow you, to clear up some of those confusions, to encourage you to hang in there, to clarify things for you, to pray for you, to carry you, to chase you down when you run away. To get up in your face when your heart hardens. You better believe he works through weak, broken people. Just like Peter who had denied this Jesus three times. In the nights before Jesus laid aside his life. For Peter and his sheep. Do you know that humble shepherd? Do you know what he's like? Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that he has provided for you? Not just in an esoteric way but in tangible ways. If you don't, that's the shepherd that calls you to come to him. That's the one who calls you. So what would hold you back? Come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We thank you that you're the patient shepherd who walks up to Peter while his denial of you was still fresh The knives in your back from Peter himself were still there when you walked to him and you said, Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock. Jesus, we pray that you would provide for all of us, help us to see and make use of the shepherds you've put around us in our lives. And when they fail us, let even their failure be one more signpost back to you, the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
but also in their goodness and all the good that they have done for us. Or would we we pray that we would see your hand at work in our lives through them. That when we meet up for coffee with someone or get a phone call or a text from someone, we would, you would connect the dots for us. It's not just Joe calling us, but it's Jesus reaching out to us through Joe. Pray that you'd help us have eyes to see that. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.